Last Friday, when I was working on the sermon for this morning, I was interrupted, but I wasn't too mad because it was the Amazon delivery driver here at church. And he was delivering something that I was really, really excited about, my 2023 day planner. Maybe that's not too exciting to you, especially the the younger ones of you here this morning. But those closest to me know that I am essentially non-functional as a human being without a good day planner. So at least for me, it's kind of a big deal. I even splurge every year for a really fancy one. This is, this is my planner from this year. It's, it's one of those fancy ones, you know, with the strap and the pen holder. It's, it's got places for me to write my goals for the year. It's got places for me to write quarterly goals and monthly goals, weekly goals. It's got checkboxes for each of the days. It's just a wonderful thing. It even has stickers. I mean, come on, this thing is awesome. I'm uh, looking forward to, though, this week, probably one of the highlights is going to be setting up my new day planner. Uh, writing in the important dates, putting in all my family and friends' birthdays, and, and putting stickers, the little birthday cake stickers I get by their birthdays, and, and considering what I want my goals to be for the year of 2023. And I think that even if you're not as neurotic about day planners as I am, you've probably had some thoughts in the last few hours about what your plans for this year are. It's kind of a natural thing for when we have a nice break like this, and you might actually be a little bit surprised at how ancient the tradition of making plans or setting goals or making resolutions for a new year really is. It's super ancient, like almost as ancient as human history goes outside of the Bible. Almost 2,000 years before Jesus was born, 4,000 years ago, people in ancient Babylon would celebrate their new year, which was in March, by making New Year's resolutions. And their New Year's resolutions don't sound very different from ours. One of the most common and popular New Year's resolutions in ancient Babylon 4,000 years ago was get out of debt. (laughs) And another popular and common one was get on the right side of the gods. The ancient Romans, too, made New Year's resolutions similar to that. New Year's resolutions in January, according to the Roman calendar that we follow. So it's maybe not surprising that Thousands of years later, people are still doing this. It's such a common thing still today that our government itself actually publishes resources for us aimed to help people better keep their New Year's resolutions. And it might not be that surprising that people for thousands of years have done this. It's fun and exciting to imagine what a better year, a better life, a better you, a better world might look like. This time, this year, we'll get it right, we think. This year is the year that I finally do... Well, whatever it is that you're hoping to do this year, or whatever it is you're hoping to quit this year, new year, new me, right? Psychologists actually think that maybe one of the reasons we're so prone to optimism and resolution making at New Year's is because we feel like a new year, a new calendar year provides a blank slate for us. We can put all our failures and all our disappointments from the last year into that nice, neat little box. That was 2022. That, that's different. That was 2022 me. 2023 me is, is someone else. That's not going to happen. It's going to be different now. But we all know the problem with that, don't we? Is it really different in the new year? We actually know better. Uh, Really, only about 50% of people who even make resolutions actually believe that they're going to be able to keep them for a whole year. 
And you've probably heard every year in the news or whatever, wherever else you hear it, the statistics of the people who actually do follow through and keep their New Year's resolution, about 10%. And I'm a pretty good example of that. Because looking at my planner from last year, boy, I had some good goals. I mean, January 2022, Paul was uh, <laughs> kind of cute, actually. <laughs> um, I had some pretty good goals. I wanted to brush up on my Greek grammar, um, and I figured that I could do that by going through one of my Greek textbooks from college. There are 50 lessons in the book. Wow, there are 52 le- weeks in a year. That's perfect. I get, even get two weeks of vacation from Greek, which any Greek student knows sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Uh, a vacation from Greek is excellent. Um, guess how far into January I made it this year? Three weeks. I got lessons one, two, and three done, so I, re- I reviewed the alphabet. That's about as far as I made it. I had another maybe more important and better goal. I even drew a a, a list of boxes I could check off as I did this goal. I planned on taking my wife on a date every single week in the year of 2022. Don't zoom in on it. Um, (laughs) I've got about half of them checked. And Megan will be generous. She'll say I probably did better than that. The idea, of course, not being to do anything extravagant, but to grow the relationship that God has blessed us with. And what a good goal. And... Yeah, really only about half of it. I'm horribly embarrassed at how many times I had to leave the checkbox for each day with my personal devotion unchecked. You've probably experienced this too. The excitement of a clean slate, a new year, a new relationship, a new job, a new semester, a new whatever. And then the frustration of messing it up, not living up to the expectations you have for yourself. And the problem really only gets worse when you shift from thinking about good resolutions like healthy living or productive habits and shift to spiritual matters. And maybe you're like me and you've even tried using a New Year's resolution to help fight against that pet sin that you get caught in. I'm not going to talk against that because frankly, friends, like that, the fight against sin and temptation or sinful nature, is, there's no room for honor in that fight. Fight as dirty as you can against the devil and your sinful nature, right? Use anything you can, even if it's New Year's resolutions, to win that fight. But what happens when you fail? What happens when you don't follow through? What then? Well, we're Christian, right? We know Jesus still forgives us. So we pick ourselves back up, dust ourselves off, and try again. You promise you're going to do better next time. Maybe you add some structure. You write feverishly in your day planner. You find an accountability partner. Come up with whatever other plan it is. But there's only so far that these things get us. And it certainly doesn't get us as far as heaven. Which brings us to our reading from Galatians. And here we're kind of picking up in the middle of one of Paul's trains of thought in the letter. He's writing obviously to the churches in Galatia, but he's writing to address a matter that is a pretty serious issue in the early Christian church. And not just really there, but all around the church. You might remember that the transition from the Old Testament way of life to New Testament freedom wasn't exactly easy for every Christian. A lot of those early believers had a hard time navigating this. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they had lived under really relatively strict, by our idea, um, laws that regulated their worship life and even their personal lives in some ways that as New Testament believers, we would feel like are really kind of overreaching. You remember the rules. Um, 
the laws about not eating certain things like pork or shellfish. If you had shrimp cocktail last night as a New Year's party, you were enjoying your New Testament Christian freedom. Uh, those laws about not working on Saturday, having worship on Saturday, laws that established certain festivals and how they were to celebrate them specifically and so on and so forth. The problem wasn't really with these rules and regulations. The problem was that there was a group of believers called the Judaizers who kept getting in their heads that these Old Testament laws were more powerful than they really were. They misunderstood the purpose of those laws. They believed that even with Jesus having come and lived and died and rose again, ascended into heaven with a promise he's going to return, they believed that if you wanted to be a good Christian, you really still better follow all those Old Testament laws as well, just to be sure. They believed that they had to do that to prove that they were good enough, to prove that they belonged to God's family, to attain holiness. And they went so far, and this is how they get the name Judaizer, they went so far as to say that non-Jewish, so Gentile converts to Christianity, had to also begin following Jewish Old Testament rules and regulations. Where we pick Paul up, he's really arguing, you guys, you, you've got it all wrong. The Mosaic law, the laws of Moses, these Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, he says, aren't some great thing that are going to somehow connect you to forgiveness or holiness or freedom, certainly. That's not even their purpose, really. The laws covering worship and personal lives for Old Testament believers were intended for one thing, to point them to Christ, so that when they find Christ, they could find justification in him. The laws were never intended to grant holiness or to make people better. Those of you who are like me and old enough to remember the King James Version of the Bible might remember the, the verse this way from Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And that's really an okay translation, but maybe not perfect. Uh, the word there that Paul uses is pedagogus, which is Greek for a specific kind of slave that a, a relatively well-off family might have. This pedagogus was, his job really was just to make sure that the school boy made it to school. Whether it was to curb the boy's natural inclination to go do something other than school or to protect him on his way to school, his job was to make sure he got there. And that was about it make them back. Maybe a modern-day equivalent would be a school bus driver or a bus monitor. Their job is to make sure that the students get safely to school where they can be taught. And that's the role that Paul says the Old Testament law had. The law wasn't even really the teacher, after all, but more of a, the chaperone to make sure that people under Old Testament rules and regulations and laws found their way to the teacher, Jesus without getting lost or into trouble along the way. But of course, we're all good Lutherans, so of course we know that the law can't show us a Savior. It can't lead us to heaven. Not even God's special laws for his chosen people of the Old Testament can do that. We even know our Bible history well enough to know how foolish and silly the position of the Judaizers looks in, in hindsight and how even more foolish and silly the, the Pharisees who made up extra laws on top of those laws look. But the problem is, I think it's really easy for us to end up like those Judaizers and maybe even worse, the Pharisees. Because they loved God, or at least they thought they did. 
And they loved his word. They loved systems and rules. They loved planning. They loved strategies. They loved all the same kinds of things that we like to do when we're given a clean slate at the start of a new year. And their goal, honestly, was even more lofty and and honorable and, and good, commendable than our good goals of healthy living and, and productive, uh, productive habits. They, their goal was justification, perfection, holiness. But isn't that really what's at the heart of all of our New Year's resolutions? All of our plans for what a new year might be. Deep down, we just want to be good. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel like we can justify ourselves or that we can say, yes, I'm right in what I've done. New year, new me. I'm going to do it right this year. And just like the Judaizers or the Pharisees, so often we find ourselves relying on rules and strategies and plans and willpower and whatever else to accomplish it. And all of that optimism of a new year can quickly be undermined by the frustration and exhaustion and cynicism that comes when we don't live up to even our own expectations. We've gone through it so many times. Year after year, we know what's going to happen. 50% of people don't even believe that they're going to keep the resolutions that they make, and we know that only 10% really do. We know we're just going to fail, but here we are again at the start of a new year trying again, aren't we? Trying to do the right thing, trying to recreate ourselves new for a new year. That's really all law thinking, isn't it? Maybe not Old Testament law. I mean, hopefully not Old Testament law. But it's law nonetheless. I have to do this. I have to make sure that I do the right thing. I have to be better. I have to do this. New year, I'm going to make a new me. I'm going to do it right. This is all do, 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 or don't do, don't do, don't do. And I think we do this really for the same reason that the Pharisees and the Judaizers did it. That is, leaning on law to make or change or, or save our lives, fix our lives. Because it's familiar and maybe even feels safer. If the Old Testament law was supposed to be a chaperone, a, a pedagogist, a, a bus monitor for God's people, maybe we can think of it almost as like a babysitter. Remember how much when you were little you looked forward to the day when mom and dad would leave you home alone and they would leave you home alone without making you have a babysitter. Boy, that would be some great day when you felt so grown up. And then the day came, and how did it really feel? Kind of scary. Or maybe I'm just a wimp. I don't think I'm alone in this. Because all of a sudden, mom and dad are gone, and either you're home all alone, or you're home alone, and you've got some younger siblings who now you are responsible for. All of a sudden, you kind of missed that babysitter. Even if you uh, loved whoever your parents got to come and look after you, even if you understood that they, they couldn't ever provide for you or take care of you the same way your parents could, all of a sudden, you want them back, don't you? We're the same way. Laws and rules and regulations, they feel safe and familiar and comfortable to us, even if we know that at the end of the day, they can't save us, they can't do for us what our Heavenly Father wants to. So we make them. And we try to follow them. And honestly, it can end up being a complete waste of energy and rob us of the peace that we should be able to have in Jesus. Because as Paul says, now that faith has come, he's talking about the fully realized faith that 
is in Jesus, not the, not the Old Testament faith that just looks forward to a Savior and is kept by the, the Old Testament laws pointed forward. No, the law is not our babysitter anymore, our chaperone anymore, our pedagogist anymore. That faith has been realized. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law completely for you. And that brings us to the church holiday that we're actually celebrating this morning. Holidays are kind of funny in the church, right? Uh, You have some holidays that are originally Christian, um, like Christmas and Easter, that since Christianity is so widespread, such a major religion, that the rest of the world kind of picked up on, ah, this seems like kind of a fun thing to celebrate this time of year. And maybe the rest of the world celebrates it completely without any of the Christian meaning. There are other holidays that kind of worked the other way, where the secular world has some sort of a holiday and as believers, we say, well, this seems like a really nice opportunity for us to have a special worship service. Last night, New Year's Eve is an example of that. Thanksgiving is another one. The holiday today is not one of those. There are two separate holidays on January 1st. The world celebrates New Year's Day. There's really no ancient tradition in the church of celebrating New Year's Day. Anyone know what holiday we're celebrating today? Bonus points for you if you do. Ooh, close. Epiphany is January 6th. January 1st, according to the old tradition of the Christian church, is the festival of the circumcision and naming of Jesus. So there you have it. If you want to go home or take a picture by the Christmas tree and post it on social media like you do for Christmas, make sure that you post it saying, Happy Festival of the Circumcision and Naming of Jesus today. All your, all your followers on social media will go, Huh? It's not one that we celebrate a whole lot. <laughs> you really only ever if, it, if a Sunday falls on January 1st. And that's okay. Uh, the church has historically celebrated this on January 1st because it's the eighth day after December 25th. And, and don't start counting yet because it's that way by the Jewish way of counting days. So that means if Jesus had been born on December 25th, and he probably wasn't, but that's the day we picked to celebrate his birthday, he would likely have been circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish tradition, according to Old Testament laws, which would have been January 1st. A boy was supposed to be circumcised and officially receive his name on that eighth day, and that's what that one-verse gospel we read was all about. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. But why celebrate it? The church has historically had some maybe problematic and unhelpful ideas surrounding circumcision that border on superstitious, which would be a waste of our time to focus on this morning. But it's worth thinking about and even celebrating what this eighth-day ceremony in Jesus' life means for us. Because the fact that Jesus was circumcised seems small and insignificant and maybe even awkward to think about, but it shows us that Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law. It shows that he was under God's law, just like you and me. He had all the same expectations from God that any other believer in his time would have, and he fulfilled God's law completely, even to the smallest, tiniest details, so that he could be the Savior that you and I need. So how appropriate is it that on this eighth day, he was given the name Jesus, which means Savior? And it's because of this work of Jesus, his perfection, that what Paul says next is true. Because Jesus lived perfectly, because Jesus followed all of God's laws perfectly, because Jesus died an innocent death and rose victorious over the grave, every one of us who has faith in him belongs to God. 
Paul says, you're clothed with Christ. This is one of the reasons pastors wear white robes. It's, it's not because pastors are anything special or because we're any more holy than anyone else. It's to remind us that we're clothed with Christ. It covers up whatever fashion choices your pastor might make on a morning, just like Jesus' perfection covers over any of the sinful choices that we make in life. It's the same reason sometimes at a funeral you'll see that white pall laid over the casket during the funeral. Again, that's a reminder this person has been clothed with Christ through faith. It's a reminder that you and I and all believers in Jesus are covered with Jesus' perfection. Paul goes on to say that there's really no difference between Jew and Gentile, whether you follow those old traditions or not, no difference between a slave or a free person, no difference between a man or a woman. He says we're all clothed with Christ. We're united in him. We're one in him. And when it comes to your plans for a new year, it means that no matter what changes you feel like you need to make, no matter what resolutions you feel like have to be made and, and hopefully kept this year, the pressure is off. You're clothed with Christ's perfection. You don't need to reinvent a new you for the new year. You're already new. You don't need to look to the new year to be your fresh start. You have Jesus and his perfection. When your new year doesn't turn out as well as you want, even if it already has gone downhill in a, in a quick and terrifying way, you have Jesus and you have his perfection. You're an heir of eternity and you don't need laws or rules or resolutions or willpower or, or accountability partners or whatever else it might be to make it happen. As wonderful as those things are, as helpful as those things are in our lives, you're already new. It's a done deal. So as you savor the, the clean start, the clean slate, fresh start of a new year, and as you imagine all the possibilities that God has in store for you for 2023, remember Jesus has earned an even more important and powerful clean slate for you. His own holiness, into which you were baptized and clothed, the, his own holiness that he affirms on you in, in holy communion, your identity and your value, your worth, they're all wrapped up in Jesus, God's own Son. You don't have to create a new self this year because Jesus has already made you new. As Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. In other words, because God has worked faith in Jesus in your heart, all of the wonderful promises that he's made to Abraham apply to you as well. So, Make your resolutions. It's a good thing to do. Plan for the new year. That's a good thing to do. Write in your day planner if that's your thing. That's a great thing to do if you're me. But do it keeping in mind what your Savior has done for you rather than under the pressure of your, even your own expectations. You don't have to do it. Live your new year in joy and optimism and confident hope because Jesus has already made you the new you. Amen.